people are not only their occupations, they're their skills. And with their skills, they can transition. They can transition in this network. And the thing is, the statistical assistant might be automated, but they have skills that allow them to transition to other occupations that are growing in demand. While childcare workers might not be automated, but they're, they're easy to reach. In a way, childcare work is something intrinsic to humans, so other people that may be automated might go for that occupation. And again, talking about demand and supply, that's why, and this is something the network reveals, it's not straightforward to say automatable occupations are going to suffer, uh, non-automatable occupations are going to grow, but it's somewhere in between. <laughs> industrial revolution, most people have responded in one of two ways to the threat of technological unemployment, either a general blanket fear that the machines are coming for us all, or an equally uncritical dismissal of the issue. But history shows otherwise. The labor market changes over time in adaptation to the complex and nonlinear ways automation eats economies. Some jobs are easier to lose, but teach skills that translate to other, more secure jobs. Other kinds of work elude mechanization, but are comparably easier for humans and thus don't provide the kind of job security one might suppose. By analyzing labor networks, studying the landscapes of how skill sets intersect with labor markets, and these systems mutate under pressure from a changing technological milieu, researchers can make deeper and more practical quantitative models for how our world will shift along with evolutions in robotics and AI. Dispelling chicken little fears and challenging the sanguine techno-optimists, these models start to tell a story of a future not unlike the past, one in which big changes will disrupt the world we know, arrive unevenly, reshape terrains of privilege and hardship, and reward those who can dedicate themselves to lifelong learning. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is R. Maria Del Rio Chanona, a mathematics PhD student supervised by SFI external professor Doyne Farmer at the University of Oxford. Before starting her PhD, Maria did her Bachelor's of Science in Physics at Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México and was a research intern at the International Monetary Fund where she studied global financial contagion in multi-layer networks. We met at the 2019 New Complexity Economics Symposium in Santa Fe to discuss the use of agent-based models in economics, how the labor market changes in response to technological disruption, and the future of work. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. 
Applications are now open for the 2020 Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a number of staff and research positions. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Well, Maria, it's a pleasure to be joining you amidst the complexity here. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Michael, and thank you very much, Supply, uh, for inviting me here. Yeah. So I'd like to, before we dive into the details of your, your work... This is, I think you're the youngest person we've had on the show here, and this is, this is a really great opportunity to ask you some questions as a young scientist about your early career work and, and how you got into the field. And so I'd, I'd love to know, you know, what drew you into your study with Doyne Farmer and, and into the discipline more, more generally? Uh, yeah. So I, I did my bachelor's in physics, but I have to say when I was in high school and I was deciding what to study, I considered physics or psychology. And I, I went for physics because people told me it would be easier to switch afterwards. But I think the the psychologist and like the curiosity for human behavior never stopped at me. And I, I loved physics, but towards the end, and, and even at the beginning, I sometimes felt the world needed a bit more economic solutions than it needed physics solutions. So I, I wanted to do a PhD, and I literally googled physicists, economists. Uh, I, I like the UK, so I, I googled there. I found Don Farmer, and I started reading about him and thought, this guy's amazing. Uh, I read about, uh, and I actually saw the documentary of him playing roulette. And you know, With the shoe computer? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And it was like... That's amazing. I, I, I'm the type of person that could never like tie an electric circuit, but like seeing that, I was like, oh, I was inspired in in some way. And the, the way he says uh, we can predict the economy, or we can understand it, and we have to uh, get our models, make them empirical, go to the data, and show it works. For me, it it showed how the future of economics should be, and I wanted to be part of that. Yes, I just. I, I guess I just wanted to contribute to the world, and I felt the only way was if our models, which which I mean scientific models, agent-based modeling in particular, uh, were backed empirically. So I wrote Doyne an email. He replied. He said, I'm going to Mexico. I met with him, had a great conversation. Uh, end of story. I applied for the PhD. Right on. So you spoke at the uh, annual symposium that we held this weekend on a new complexity economics and made a, a very, uh, I don't know, you made a strong case, uh, although to a very sympathetic audience for the role of agent-based modeling in economics. And I'd like to hear you unpack that a little bit for people that are not familiar because the audience to this show, it's like, a, we kind of, you know, I know there's a lot of experts, but there's also a lot of people that are new, you know, new to these ideas and it would, uh, you know, to, to talk a little bit about the value of a data-driven approach and agent-based modeling in in economics, and and how you see, uh, you know, why it is that you've cleaved to these these methodologies. Because I think it's intuitive. Because I think agent-based models relate to how we see every every life, 
every person is, is independent and does decisions. And I, I, the things you, you'd like to see that in, in an experiment sort of way, like as in physics, but you can't do that. And for example, Rob Axel said, well, once you have a policy simulator, you can run hundreds of scenarios. Standard economics, they, they start with some actions, rational agents, for example. And those actions lead to, a, to an equilibrium where supply equals demand. And the way they think is, well, and well, many economists think, and even some physicists doing economics is, how, how do we deviate from this equilibrium? But it's, it's focusing on the end rather than on the trajectory. And, and that's the point I believe mostly in, that we should focus on how the economy is evolving and not where it should be. Because the reason is, the reasoning behind that is, well, it should be a, an equilibrium because if it wasn't, there would be this force, this invisible hand that would put it back in there. But as, as many complex systems uh, scientists say, if we're at equilibrium, we're dead. And I think that's the one thing we know about society. We're not all dead. We're quite alive. <laughs> Uh, and then agent-based model is focusing on the dynamics, on the evolution, and it and it's the thing you see to everyday life. Life now, I, I think we're at the point where economics c can start developing in a different way. Why? Because, the, and I believe the reason economics started with this action axioms and this theorems was because it was so hard to get data, to experiment, to see that your ideas were true, and and then it's. It might be a bit easier and even useful when you can do it to just lock yourself out and just think rationally, think logically. If A and B happens, then do you get C? But then the problem is that, well, and actually math is beautiful. I love math. But then the thing with math is that once you prove something, you know it's right. And that's beautiful. And that can be, in a way, addictive. You get addictive at playing the game of math. But you forget if your actions, if your assumptions match the real world. But we couldn't do much because it was easy. It wasn't easy to observe the economy. You know, you could we could see how we shop, etc. But you wouldn't record all those transactions. But now I, th I think now the world is changing, and now we can say I believe the world behaves in this way. I do my agents. I put them some behavior, and I can calibrate their behavior with real data. For example, we, could, we can see now, in general, if, if you have one occupation, what's the likelihood you get unemployed? What's your average wage? Those things let us know how agents might be able to behave. You know, your wage might define your consumption patterns. So now we can actually observe the world, and we can testify our ideas if our models are correct. And I think that's the new way to view the economy, where we have to be very strong in our models, but we have to bring them to the data. And if they fail, we know we're wrong. And then we try again until we get it, because I think, I think we owe it to the people. I think the economy is something important. You know, I've, one of the, the quotes I, I, I learned at the, at the IMF when I was, um, I, was with, I was with Christine Lagarde's talk, and one of the things she said was people before numbers. And that mm. stuck into me. And that's the one thing I want to do when I do economics. I always doubt myself. I doubt my models. And I think as a scientist, we should. And the only way to be a bit more sure about it is to bring it to the data. So I'd like to talk about two of the papers that you co-authored. Um, and I think that, I mean, they're very 
uh, intimately related. But uh, the one I'd like to get to first is about looking at l the labor realm through a, a, like a network map, a network model. This is a paper that you wrote with uh, Penny Mealy and, and Doyne Farmer, uh, What You Do at Work Matters, New Lenses on Labor. So I think most people have a general intuition that the skills that you learn in one job sort of change the possibility space for you if you're going to move to another job. But um, this this paper uh, really looks at this in a very granular way and in, in a way that, like you just said, you know, would not have been possible in an earlier period of, of scarcer data. So could you unpack this a little bit? Like, how did you actually set up this model and, and what did you find? Uh, right. Yes. Great, great phrasing of it. I think the way it started is with the conversation with Penny. Penny was the driver of, the, of this paper. Penny's a great scientist and she knows a bit about economic, well, she, she's probably one of the people that knows most about economic complexity. And she had this idea that you could see how similar two occupations were uh, depending on what you do at work, right? So, for example, a paramedic and a nurse might be similar because they, they do stitches, they care to wounds, uh, in the same way that a taxi driver and a bus driver might be similar. And, and based on the idea of economic complexity, you can define a network of occupations uh, where they are linked, and, and these links are weighted by the similarity between them. And we define similarity as the amount of uh, work activities they share uh, with some normalizing factor. And so, so when I was talking to Penny and she mentioned this to me, it, it seemed like a great idea. I knew a bit of networks, so we started working. And, and then it, it comes this this thing that always comes out when you work with Doyne. You have this idea and he thinks like, yes, I think that's true, uh, but let's test it. Uh, so how do you test if it's true that two occupations are similar? And the way we thought it would be is, well, let's look at data on job transitions. If it's true that two occupations are similar, then maybe you can see if they're similar enough from one, for one person to switch from one job to another. And that's what this paper focuses on. And uh, w we managed to show that there is some relation. There's actually more relation to other networks. So there's, um, for example, ONET has this career changer network where they suggest to you other occupations. And we actually uh, managed to beat this in the way. So uh, this we showed that this network is in some way predictive of how people can transition between occupations. And, and when we saw that result, I think... I think that's when, when you know that, okay, the ideas of how you see the world actually have some, some sense in reality. So there's, there's two very interesting maps that we'll link to in the, in the notes for this episode. Uh, one is the job space network, and then the other is the work activity space network. And I, you, you already you know, mentioned that a lot of this has to do with the energy or a time or attention required in in reskilling the way that these cluster out but like I, you know looking at this it's beautiful how this sorts into it, it seems so similar to the questions of evolutionary possibility based on the anatomy of the organism and then like whether a new niche that's opened up 
can actually be populated by the organisms in that ecosystem or not. I don't know. I just, so I'd love to, if, if <laughs> sorry, I, I have a, a way of, of, of branching into tangents here, but, um, you know, as part of a, you know, an effort to uh, create bridging analogies and generalizations, you know, what do you see as the sort of general insights of the job space and work activity space networks, like at a very deep layer, like what are we actually looking at here, you know, energetically or informationally? What is governing these geometries? Oh, that's a lovely way to put it. Uh, I, I wish I had thought about it more that way. Uh, so I might, I'll, I'll, I'll speak from here, hypothesizing. Uh, so, so these are ideas I haven't tested. We haven't tested, but I think you're. It's beautiful the way you put it. That to look at it as an evolutionary perspective, the way you might see it is as if occupations were sort of different. Well, actually, species is not. It's not the correct term. But there were organisms, let's say, uh, with different phenotypes. So they're they're the same species, let's say, but they have different. Uh, colors or different different features and you're able to jump from one to the other between generations here the analogy would be well between retraining then the thing that would be amazing to study is how this changes because the way you could see it is occupations are in an ecology the ecology is driven by the demand of firms what do they want right so, for example, a lot of people right now are asking for things related to data and statistical analysis. So, in a way, the environment is changing and the organisms have to adapt. So, you'll probably see uh, organisms or occupations, well, the organisms in the occupations, which you can say the population of one occupation, moving towards, moving to adapt to this new landscape. When it comes to work activities... I see that more of like the characteristics of of the people, what what things you can do, the skills, right? And then if they're close together, it means, I, I would say, it means it's like when you have one gene, you're more you're more likely to have another gene. There's there's some correlation between genes. In the same way, maybe if you're good at painting, you're good at sculpture. Well, if you're good at solving math equations, you might be good at coding. Things like that. So it's let's say they're 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 genes that might be correlated in this sort of ecosystem that I'm not even sure I uh, define the correct way, but I would I would venture and put it that way. So one of the useful insights that emerges from this network analysis is the demographic distribution of labor, and I'd love to hear you speak about that, like the the way that looking at this helps to explain certain persistent issues in the labor market with, you know, uh, like the availability of certain kinds of work to certain genders or uh, education levels or you know, these kind of things. So, like, what do you think precipitates out of this? How is this generative of useful insights to, like, policymakers or employers or educators? You know, how can we use this? to shed light on the ways that we are failing to provide opportunities for people or, or, you know, what other insights spilled out of this for you in that regard? Yes. So it's when you see at the pictures, you see this network, 
And then on upon this network of occupations, we plotted things like education, and you see they're clustered differently. You see things like wage. We also plotted uh, the gender. And it's also split, but it's split in different ways. So in a, in a way, there's... You, you can see a clear cluster of, let's say, high wage and low wage. And if, if you put uh, gender on top of it, you sort of split it in four, which would be high wage female, high wage male, low wage female, low wage male, right? So it, it tells us that, well, first thing, wage is driven by many things, but one of them is demand and supply. So in a way, when you see when you see this plot and you see low wage in one place and high wage in the other, if you wanted to make it more homogeneous, what you'd say is the people, the, the occupations with high wage, it means they're difficult to reach. It means it's difficult for people to have those skills. So the policy there, and this might be oversimplistic, but what first comes to mind is teach the skills in those occupations because you're, you're saying it's scarce. That's, that's why it drives wage. People cannot do that as easily. Well, the low skills, you'd say, well, maybe I don't have to focus that much on it. When it comes to gender, for example, that's that, that's a bit more complicated, let's say, because it's, it's a good for people to split in genders that split occupations. I would say no. But economically, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a reason behind it. I think that one is, is more interesting to understand what causes it. And it's one of the things that I'd like to build a model to explain this this pattern. Uh, and uh, the, I think the big question is, is it genetics or is it cultural? My personal opinion is it's cultural. I, I don't think uh, women and, and men are born totally different and that determines if you want one occupation or the other. I think it's more cultural. But I think this is a way of, of thinking back and saying, well, what what makes our culture tell women to thrive in, uh, in some occupations and men in others. So I think, I think those are the questions that might be interesting there. What surprised you about this research? Like, uh, you know, looking at these correlations, did anything pop out to you as counterintuitive? Yes, so I would say there wasn't anything too surprising from this work. Some of the things were intuitive. The fact that, you know, there's, there's a clustering and there's High, high wages and low wages is intuitive to daily life. But there were some red alerts. And some of the red alerts include, for example, the, that occupations with high wage are, have low probability of being automated and also do not tend to be very pollution intensive. And low wage tends to be automatable and tends to be pollution intensive. So if you think, you know, th this ecosystem is, is evolving and it's evolving towards adapting to climate change and we'll reduce the low polluting uh, occupations and we'll automate some occupation, then it's, it's, this is a warning sign that says, well, if, if, if the jobs you're going to remove are already low wage, that just gives a bit of a warning. And I think that was, that was something that struck us. And when we saw that, we were like, yeah, I think we need to go deeper. I mean, it, it should come as a surprise to no one that we're talking about the low-wage jobs that have the highest exposure to the risk of automation are the majority of this map. And so it gets into this question that comes up on the show a lot, which is, you know, in, in uh, situations where this seems like it might be the symptom 
of increasing returns in the network, positive feedback. At some point, the whole thing empties itself out, right? And, you know, you get into these economic questions of there's the anecdote of the labor union coordinator and the car manufacturer walking through the plant. And he's saying, look at all these great new robots. You know, they don't sleep. They don't complain. They don't strike. And then the union leader says, well, yeah, but they don't buy cars. You know, so this tails into the this other paper uh, on which you're the lead author about automation and occupational mobility. So like building on this, this understanding, looking at the network as a, a way to understand how people can transition through periods of, of change in the labor market. I'd like to hear, yeah, if you, if you want to lay out a little bit about the thinking behind this piece and how you decided to uh, dig into the data and like, you know, how, you know, what, what data formats, you, how this piece methodologically differs from the piece that we just discussed. Yes. So uh, as you say, in, in a way, the, the, the previous paper led into this one with those red alerts. We saw we need to dive into this. We need to understand it. Uh, when we started uh, with Penny seeing this red alert, we wanted to see if, if we could do something more. And the thing is, we thought, well, we think agents adapt, right? And they move. And as you say, we're, we're not static. So could we include that in the model? So in, in and the other thing is, uh, well, we think labor is important because it has had an impact in history. So you can see it from... If you go to the medieval cities or, or cities that have medieval backgrounds in, in Europe, for example, in Brussels, uh, in the Grand Plaza, you'll see guilds. And in the guilds, it was, it, there were these uh, institutions where if, if you wanted to be a fisherman, you had to be affiliated to the guild. Now, this was a way for the guild um, to keep track of how many fishermen there were and not assign too many, because if you have too many fishermen, you have a lot of supply of labor, and then wage goes down. By the way, there was also a way to control how many women or how much women could work. So it's, it's funny how labor goes back all the way. Uh, you can think also of Jim Crow laws. When there was all of a sudden an extra supply of labor, people started to think, well, let's, let's make a law that will separate people. Uh, and if if you go to today's politics, the 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 ideas of the president of the United States, the ideas behind Brexit, tend to be about securing the scarcity of jobs, so making our skills scarce. Because if if everyone can do what we do, we're not going to get get a high wage. So when robots can do what we do, we might be into trouble. And that's how this started leading here. Now, what we did is we basically took um, previous research on some predictions of which occupations would be automated. And then we thought, well, you know, people are not going to say like, oh, yeah, I got automated. That's it. I'm unemployed. I'm going <laughs> to remain unemployed. And yeah, I think they would fight back. And how do they fight back? Well, we had data on job transitions. We had data that tells us where people move. So we thought, okay, let's build a model. And we constructed... So th the first thing is we, we saw we cannot solve this, solve this only with data. You know, as much as we liked these maps that overlapped, it wasn't going to give us the answer. We had to do a model. 
And we had to do a model that was based on, on what we thought was reality. So we thought, what are the things that drive this? Well, first, there's some uh, spontaneous process. People leave their job and new vacancies get open. That that's just happens at random, let's say. But then there's a force driving the economy. There's this landscape change. This, this is how the economy evolves that says, well, I'm, I'm going to push a bit and I'm going to, you know, make less uh, vacancies, job vacancies for taxi drivers and make more job vacancies in the healthcare system. So there was this other force that would push it towards uh, a, a new prediction of demand. The prediction of demand, we got it with the automatability of occupations. Uh, I have to hit, say here there's a major assumption. We assume in a way that the labor for the labor demand stays constant. And why do we do this? Well, historically, you know, there's the industrial revolution. There's automation is not a new thing. If anything, is the only thing human has has always done. We've always been through technology. But but what happens is it's not that we get massive unemployment. It's more like some jobs are destroyed and new are created. So our hypothesis was let's take. Uh, the predictions of, of automatability and say the ones with uh, low automation probability are going to increase their demand. The ones with high automation probability are going to decrease it. On average, we're, we're going to stay uh, constant. The model can be flexible and can assume different levels, but that was the starting point. Um, I have to say here a, a, a caveat of this work. When we talk about automation probabilities, when Frey and Osborne and Eric Brynjolfsson, Mitchell and Rock put their predictions out there, it's the probability that it can be automated. It's not the probability that it will be automated. The difference is we might be able to make a robot for a waiter, but it might be just cheaper to pay someone. So in that way, it won't be automated. But anyway, that, that was an assumption in the model. So sorry, recapping is some random fluctuations this force that drives the economy towards new jobs, and then the adaptation of, of workers and they transitioning between occupations. And, and that's how the model works. Three simple rules. That's it. We put the shock, we let it run, and what we observe is how much unemployment changes in each occupation and how much long-term unemployment changes. Because in a way, it's not very bad if you're unemployed, like we could take a break. Just kidding, but it's... I mean, it sucks, but it's not as bad as if you're a long-term unemployed, right? If you've been unemployed for a year, that's when it really, really starts getting bad. So that's the other measurement we took into account. And what we saw in this model was that, for example, we take the example of childcare workers and statistical assistants. And, you know, I like to say, if, if your nephew asks you, I either want to become a childcare worker or a statistical assistant, uh, you know, you you look at those automation probabilities, childcare worker, not likely to be automated, statistical assistant, likely to be automated. And you might think, well, of course, you should be a childcare worker. Then you're not going to be automated. Your job is not going to be automated. And our results tend to hint otherwise. Why? The thing is, people are not only their occupations, they're their skills. And with their skills, they can transition. They can transition in this network. And the thing is, the statistical assistant might be automated, but they have skills that allow them to transition to other occupations that are growing in demand. While childcare workers might not be automated, but they're, they're easy to reach. 
in a way, childcare work is something intrinsic to humans. So other people that may be automated might go for that occupation. And again, talking about demand and supply, that's why, and this is something the network reveals, it's, it's not straightforward to say automation, uh, automatable occupations are bad, well, are, sorry, are gonna suffer, uh, non-automatable occupations um, are gonna grow, but it's somewhere in between. And to see that concretely, we have to go to the network. So, I mean, it strikes me that this might be a useful lens to look back, like you kind of suggested a moment ago, historically, and understand why childcare has been basically invisible to the economy this whole time, that there is an abundance of, there's just so much supply on that end of the labor market that the economic value in the very rudimentary course way that we have historically been able to evaluate that to a very low point. But then there's also, um, and I guess there's, there's like two things that you, you're, you could address here. There's also the issue of, again, like this map, you know, when you talk about uh, a disturbance to the network, you know, changing the the relative incentives that exist for someone within a given set of skills. What we're talking about here in the real world is not a, a kind of random bump to the table that it's, it's endogenously generated. Like we were, we were talking about this with uh, Brian Arthur just recently about the way that uh, technology propagates new niches. And so the ways in which things are being disrupted are definitely slanted in a particular direction towards the new affordances that are created by these spaces. So I'm curious, I mean, the obvious question is, how do you see the changes that we're seeing in the technological landscape now? What is actually opening up in terms of the possibility space and, and why? And how do you think that that's going to change the weights that we assign to various skill sets? Interesting. So there's um, there's many things in that question. Yeah. One is <laughs> the system is um, there's feedback loops in the system, and it, it actually goes back to um, to what you said about the beginning, right? About this um, uh, the person with cars and the labor unionist and the labor unionist saying, well, you know, robots don't buy. And the thing is, the economy, you know, it has feedback loops. So what people buy and what they demand feeds into the network of firms. And those firms hire the workers. What I'm saying, it's not a straightforward question because automation itself is going to displace workers that might change the demand for goods that will change the demand for labor. So it's it's an ongoing process. Um this work didn't focus that much, well, doesn't focus on that, but for example, Matthew Jackson has a good paper on on how the input-output network, which is this network of firms buying between each other, how it rewires, how it might rewire because of automation. So that's one thing, considering there's feedback loops and it's not that straightforward. The other thing is, and I, th I think your question was, where are we headed, right? So stopping the detour. Where are we headed? Um, and this is just hypothesizing. I do think we're headed. Um, there's going to be increase in health, in health, um, the health sector. If, if this one thing people care about is health, 
uh, for their uh, family, for their friends, uh, and living longer. The longer we live, the more we demand on health. So that's one thing that I think is going to grow. And the other thing is uh, analytical skills, being able to interpret the world. That's, that's one driver. I think that's the positive scenario. It's the positive scenario because, and that, mean, that might be my opinion, I think those are our work that we tend to value highly because what we do is intrinsic to our value. And it's, it's important for, for people to have jobs they, they have dignity with and they are proud. You know, it's, it's important for people to be proud of their work because it's eight hours a day. <laughs> okay, so we need people to be proud of it. So I think that's the good scenario where we uh, educate people and everyone those interesting jobs, does health, does, does science, uh, and understands the world ultimately. The bad scenario is where it actually, we have so many unemployed people. Well, as I said, it's, it's not going to hit like massive levels, but we have a lot of people that, whose skills is not compatible with uh, health and science and all of that. And then we say, well, you know, it costs energy to pay to have a robot, but there's people willing to do it. So let's just pay a low wage to those people. And that is actually a bit dystopic because that, that means we're going to split people into the ones that can do high skill, the ones that can do low skill. And this is, this is actually a bit related to what Harari says. So mm. Harari puts this dystopia, right, that maybe some people are, are the ones that are going to be able to uh, buy goods that will amplify our capabilities. So, I don't know, we're going to expand our memory. But some people, and he, for example, talks about blood transfusions that might uh, enable you, you to live longer. So there's the people that are going to be able to afford it and the people that cannot. And that's going to create, you know, two types of humans in a way. And that's scary. I, I really hope we don't go that way. And I hope the way to ensure that is through retraining, because I think everyone can do uh, high school jobs if they receive the right uh, education and uh, the right motivation. And I think that's at the core what this work is about. It's about job transitions. It's about what retraining do we need to get into, let's say, the steady state we want, the attractor we want. Well, in, in a way, we're in the same attractor, but yeah, into into the fixed point or, or around the fixed point we want instead of the other. We have a choice. Well, I think we have, I, li I like to think we have a choice. And where are we going to push the system? Is it the one where everyone can go to every job because we have education or, well, not every job, but like to a job with dignity that is uh, important to them or is it the other? And I think, I think that's where we need to, to really push for the science. Yeah, I think, you know, it seems that when I zoom out and I take this absurdly large macroevolutionary view of the history of the planet and that there's this, this uh, ratcheting through major transitions toward agents that are capable of better, more adaptable models, broader perspectives, very generally speaking, that the kinds of intelligence required by someone living today much more abstract than the kinds of intelligence required, you know, perhaps 500,000 years ago. To zoom in again, there's an enormous spike that I'm observing just online in conversations around sense-making, and that it seems like this, this is where your work connects to the work 
of people like Jessica Flack, you know, looking at, at society as a collective computation and where it connects to the work of people like Andreas Wagner, looking at, you know, shocking uh, bacterial cultures with like intense selection pressure and how that, that accelerates the uh, mutational search algorithm that, that you, you see that culture going through. It sounds to me like where your work links to these, these other people is in suggesting that there's a sort of, just as economists say, oh, if you really want to put like a meta investment down on something that's going to provide a diverse array of dividends, it's on education. It's on helping people learn to explore and adapt to a rapidly changing world that in important ways cannot be anticipated. And and so there's, you know, I think I would like to remain hopeful that sense-making and creativity, that these are the things that we're going to move into naturally as a species. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I, I'd say I'd like to be optimistic, too. I, I, I love how you um, talked about organisms and, and computing as a whole, because I think I think that's vital. We're in, in in an age where it's it seems to be okay to divide people into us and them, and that's that's not how we're working. We're actually working as one organism, as you know, you said maybe as a bacteria, and there's some external shocks, and we have to deal with it. But we also have the advantage that we communicate a lot. Well, bacteria communicate in one way, but I think our communication is a is a lot more complex though some people might not use the whole complexity. Um, but yes, I think, I think we need to remain hopeful. Uh, I think we need to think about the big picture, think about how the whole landscape is changing, and think about how we're going to adapt. And planning different strategies, seeing do we want to go this way, the other way, Maybe we can understand it with bacteria. Maybe we can do some micro simulations. Maybe we can understand the coding, just doing an agent-based model and seeing what incentives you need to give. Uh, in a way, this is like control theory. You have one, you have one policy or, or several, and you can play around with it. And we need to hope that we do it the right way. Honestly, there may be many right ways. We just have to get... And, and that's the one thing I'm optimistic. I, I don't think... Uh, I, I don't think it's an an Avengers type of thing where Doctrine Strange says uh, there's so many multiverse and we're only successful in one. I think we actually, we can be successful in many ways. There's a lot of proposals. There's universal basic income. There's, uh, well, many countries have free healthcare. Many countries have free education. And one way or another, all of those might lead to it. And another thing I, I'd like to mention is when I say we need to start thinking of, of an organism as a whole, I mean the whole world. When I mean we need to uh, make our models valid with data, I also mean the whole world, which means we need to push to have data for developing countries. And, and I know SFI is a driver of this. It has groups of archaeologists going to different countries and collecting data. And I think we need to push for that because this is something that happens a lot in research. We want to publish in top journals. To do so, we need top data quality. Which countries have top data qualities? They're developing countries. They're developed countries. I mean, ironically, I'm a Mexican studying the labor market for the U.S. 
So, and I, I would actually like to do it for Mexico, for Latin America, for a lot of other countries. But it is true that the U.S. has the best data or, or one of the top data. And so I also think as scientists, we have a moral obligation uh, to look for that data. It's not only moral, it's also it gives us more about science because it gives us different environments. We're one organism in different environments. How do we develop? Overall, I think science will win with this. So yes, I think my big picture is we need to start seeing how do we get to the state that we want? How do we get together on it? We cannot forget about one part of the world because we're, we're in a globalized world. So there's, there's no way that's gonna happen. And I am optimistic, as I said, I think there's, there's many paths that can lead to it. We, I think we have the right intuition but we have to, you know, Paul Romer said it at some point, we have to decide. That's the one thing. We, we sort of know which, uh, which are the policies we need for climate change. For here, we, I mean, it's not totally clear, but we need some retraining. Well, let's, let's decide. I, I think that's, I would cite Romer and just say, at some point we have to decide. And that's, that's going to be it. So to bring this back down to the human scale and uh, you know, wrap it here, I'm curious, you're young, you're talented and intelligent and relatively well-positioned in your career, and yet you spend every day thinking about the turbulence and the change and the disruption that is facing us and will be facing us, you know, for the foreseeable future. So what insights have you taken from this and into your own life and how you imagine your, your like, lifelong strategy for navigating this like you are the node you know you're like sitting on one of those little islands in the network right so what does this mean for you maria and and how does it, how is it shaping the way that you plan and prepare for the rest of your life wow that's that's a big question uh <laughs> i have to say sfi has played an important role Doyne Farmer, uh, Francois Fond, uh, a lot of people, Penny, have played an important role in this. Uh, they're sort of my guidance. You know, someone someone once asked, because I, I'm one of those people that has always been like, oh, I, th I think academia is what I'm going to do if I can. And and they asked me, like, how can you be so sure? I, I kind of don't believe people can be sure. And I said, I'm not sure at all, but I know the things I can't do. It's, 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 more, it's more about, you know, I just know there's some things I cannot do, and then there's only one path. Yes, I, in a way, every day I'm like, okay, I see the news, and I'm like, oh, this might be going down. But then I can't just go and solve the world. Well, may, maybe I should, but I don't see it in my adjacent possible, uh, right? This, this, all this framework, what's, what's adjacent and what's possible. And the one thing I can do is keep on working in these models, trying to make them better, hoping that I do think science is, is brought up in, in, in a collective. So I, I think I, I just want to contribute little by little. I enjoy it. I like it. It, it has ups and downs. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not a person that wakes up every day and says, oh, yay, I want to go uh, to my computer and start this coding and start doing the math. No, there's days I'm like, oh, God, I wish I could stay in bed or, oh, God, I want to, you know, I, I wish I could just, you know, go for a longer run or like stay, chill out with friends. It happens. 
but it's, it's not every day that I want to do it. But I'd say maybe one in five days I wake up and I say, yes, today I'm, I'm going to write these equations and I'm going to see if they work. Sometimes they happen consecutively. Sometimes it's weeks that I'm like, I have to do this. Sometimes there's weeks that I don't want to do it. I still go to the office. It's, in a way, it's still work. But I, I do love it, and I don't see another path. That, that's my personal view. I think different people find inspiration in different ways. For me, SFI has been one way. And I'm not sure where I'm headed. It might be academia. It might not be. But somehow I'm optimistic that it's going to work because... Because it has to. And, and if I don't think that, then I don't know how I'm going to wake up every day. But, but so far, so good. I'm enjoying it. And I don't know, to all the PhD students out there, I think we all, we all struggle. And it's, it's part of the path. And we also have to learn to enjoy the little victories because there's going to be a lot of defeats. But there's, there's enough good in this world to, like, to just go for it. You know, I, I remember... Um my friend Mark Nelson, who was one of the eight people that was locked inside of Biosphere 2 for two years here in the American Southwest, he said that hope is a form of yoga. He said it was about remaining humble to the possibility that your models are wrong. So like, I, I like this, that you, you keep bringing up optimism, because in a way, I would, I would make a case, I think, that Optimism is actually humility to the possibility that your despair is mistaken. Um, anyway, Maria, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I'm glad that you're doing this work. It's, I, I, I imagine it will be very illuminating and, and helpful to a great many people and situate you well for the numerous disruptions to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I also hope it, it helps some people. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you to SFI. It's, it's a great journey to travel so far. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.